but you've got to really separate yourself out from from looking at negative feedback, negative noise in, in your environment of, the, of, of opening a restaurant and just focus on great ingredients and great stories. And that will always rise to the top. And I would suggest before you even opened your own kitchen, you need to get out for three months and travel and find out who are the best producers that I can use. That is the number one goal. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. One of the more fascinating transformations over the last decade or so is the amount of well-known chefs passing on the baton of finer dining and immersing themselves in more casual surrounds, taking the attention to detail, the focus on quality producers, but packaging it in a more accessible means to a broader audience. What impact has that approach to elevate everyday eats had on our food culture? Shannon Bennett, is one of Australia's most awarded chefs and restaurateurs, founder of View de Monde and View Group, and owner of Burnham Beaches. Shannon, how are you going? Yeah, good, thanks, Huck. I'm really well. Mate, your influence in Australia's culinary landscape is um, immense, uh, and you've uh, scaled the heights, the very, the, the, the very height that you could possibly scale. Um, but these days, you're sort of moved away from the fine dining sort of area. Um, what's it like not being uh, involved in such sort of the fine dining end of, of the culinary landscape? Well, look, I was doing it for so long that it actually feels really good to just take a break, um, take a breather and refocus on things that you didn't really have the time to, to even look at. And um, I'm loving it, I actually, to be honest. And I'm looking at uh, guys like Hugh Allen, now and admiring what they do more than ever because I know that it's harder than ever to sort of keep that standard going. When did it all start for you? Um, Viewdemont obviously was a really uh, big uh, explosion for your exposure in Australia, but when did you get your first sort of footsteps into the industry? Uh, Well, when I was 18, I basically just packed up my apprenticeship and moved to uh, Europe. And for me, that was a huge transition. I, I wrote to about five or six really good quality restaurants, one of them being Gordon Ramsay's Aubergine and the other being um, a place called Lortelan, which was in Shinfield. And um, John Burton Race had two Michelin stars and I'd heard about him and heard it was one of the toughest kitchens in the world to go and work in. So I was like, that's where I want to be. So I just rocked up uh, on his doorstep after he sent me a letter saying, yeah, turn up. I think we, we pay about £137 a, a fortnight. Um, and that was, I was like, okay, well, that's enough for some rent and a couple of beers at the end of the week. So I'm up for that. So I basically got there and um, pressed the reset button on my apprenticeship because everything was spoken in French. Um, all the ingredients were just phenomenal everything was about ingredients and a full focus and on top of that um, the kitchen was extremely high pressured and what came with that was a lot of yelling screaming um, sometimes physical abuse and um, so it was sort of like uh, that was my initiation into Michelin star kitchens and then one day uh, three months into me working there there was a thing called the big story which airs in the UK on uh, Sunday nights gets huge audiences and it's equivalent of the 60 minutes I suppose we have here and there was a girl working with me what we call a stagiaire 
a couple of weeks prior and she'd actually had a couple of cameras in her kitchen in in her bag in the kitchen and uh she'd filmed a couple of really bad services and uh basically just blew open the whole thing of the pressure of michelin star kitchens to the world and um no internet thank god back then so and social media so the restaurant survived but a lot of the chefs had left uh nigel marriage the sous chef uh left and it gave me my opportunity because i think there's a week later there was only five of us in the kitchen from a brigade of 17. So I got to learn everything and I got to work with John Burton Race side by side. And you know, he was a phenomenal teacher and mentor. And um, a lot of people say, you know, the you know the screaming, the yelling and all, all that sort of thing, oh, why put up with it? But it's actually, it's just a, a release mechanism for perfection. And that's what Burton Race wanted. He wanted that third Michelin star so badly. And for me, I was in, I was in the oven of that. I was in the central position of seeing what striving for perfection was like and, and it just completely reset my whole outlook of cooking. I, I, I fell in love with it. I remember the first couple of months going to Lawton every day, I would walk across a bridge across the M4 from an estate in Reading, which anyone who's lived in the UK knows Reading is a pretty rough town. And I was living with this uh, gay undertaker and another guy, Otis, and uh, this guy would put pregnant cat under our bed each night hoping that the cat would um, have its litter under in our bedroom so he could come and visit us at night and I was like and I so every night was my job to take the cat out and put it back in the hallway and this is the sort of stuff that we were putting up with and Otis was a French guy really really great chef and he had a slight stutter and he was he was the guy getting most of the abuse and the big story and we always would walk past this bus stop and we'd count the days because that bus stop was to London and we could get on it any day we wanted and just walk away from what we were doing. And we'd look at each other every day and, and walk past that bus stop and say, yeah, number 73. You know, like we're basically 73 days in and I'm not getting on that bus. Um, and then after a year of that hard work, it sort of all just became natural and I enjoyed it incredibly and stayed there two years. And then I went to work for Marco Pierre White, who had a huge rivalry with John Burton Race, who was going to be the first to get three Michelin stars. and um, Marco reached that uh, height first and um, for me going to Marco was a, I felt like a little bit of a betrayal to John Burton race but he took it in his stride I, I needed to go and work in a three-star restaurant then it was for me I needed to see what two-star to three-star was and it was like a it was such an incredible environment and so different because everything was then so well oiled where Burton race if he didn't like a dish he would change it that day or he'd get produce that would come in um, that day, like it could be pheasants and whatever it was, we'd change the menu. So it was a lot more chaos, but you learnt a lot more, whereas Burton Race was all about, um, sorry, Marco Piawat was all about the menu doesn't change. It's Everything is absolutely perfect and the whole kitchen team is a well-oiled machine. And the kitchen team themselves, I've never seen so many tattoos and shaved heads and um, we didn't even wear chef's jackets. It was like this rock and roll kitchen, but everyone in that kitchen just knew precision. Everyone knew it. And so I fitted in pretty quickly into that kitchen and um, I still have a lot of mates that in that kitchen that I just uh, will be mates for life because you became this. It was like a professional football team, so to speak. You were just so well drilled in what you did and everything, you looked after each other so much. But anyone on the outside was the outside. You didn't really 
care about them. All you cared about was your kitchen team and what you were doing and making customers happy. And so it was sort of a really sort of reputation thing working in that kitchen where people thought, oh, well, geez, you must be really tough working in the kitchen like that. But it wasn't. It was like working in a family. Um, and Marco was awesome. He was in every night. He was uh, really incredibly articulate and would always drive you mentally every night just with in the middle of concentration would ask you some random questions and that would try and throw you and he'd just try and make you stronger and stronger and stronger as a, as a person and as well as a cook. And so I got to see incredible things like Robin Williams walk in the kitchen and I always remember one night he walked in and everything is cooked to order and I had turned some little baby carrots all perfectly and he walked in and they were on the board and he just started eating the carrots. I turned around and I'm like, oh my God, he's just eating the carrots. And all I remember was Robin Williams trying to talk to me, me sort of having this moment where I just needed to sink into the ground and I'm trying to turn more carrots and Marco just says, Shannon, carrots. And I said, oh, Marco, three minutes. And he said, there's no three minutes, carrots now. And all I remember was just food coming flying across and just smashing against the tiles. And that whole table had to be redone again. Everything was just, and they were the sort of pressures if you didn't deliver, that's what would happen. And Marco knew that Robin um, had eaten those carrots, but he didn't say a word. He just, he just kept, he, it was my fault, no matter what, it wasn't Robin Williams's fault. And so that was the sort of environment you lived in. And I loved it for that two years. You had to be young to do it. Um, and then after that, I, I went and worked for the Rue brothers and did some pastry work um, for seven months and uh, in the Gavaroche um, and in their production kitchen called the House of Rue and learnt how to bake um, lemon tarts, um, apple tart thins, everything that I didn't get exposed to in Australia in my apprenticeship when it came to pastry. I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn how to bake. So it was a really incredible time of exposure of so much knowledge and working with so many incredible pastry chefs. Um, one of them is a guy named Thierry Busset, who's now in Vancouver, and he's got a, a chain of chocolate shops over there. Um, incredible um, chef to, to learn from. And so I felt then after nearly six years in the UK, it was, um, it was time maybe to go to France and, and see what I could do in France. And I ended up going to Monaco and working with Alan de Cass for a year. Um, which I found incredible. It was very similar to, to Marco, but with none of the testosterone. Um, it was, uh, everything was just so well oiled. Everything, the menu never changed. It only changed seasonally. Incredible produce. And I think the most important thing for me, what I took away was that in Australia at the time, this was 99, we didn't really focus too much on produce. You had the likes of Maggie Beer and, and, and Stephanie writing about how important it is with produce, but it wasn't ingrained in chefs in their training that produce was everything. It was key to, without great produce, you can't have a great restaurant. And the story that that puts on the plate, whereas Ducasse, all of his, his uh, suppliers are like family. Everyone from who supplies the, the butter up in um, Brittany all the way down to who supplies the pigeons. I always remember when there was a thunderstorm at night in the area, the next day you would never get pigeons because the pigeons used to run around the, the peach orchards and as soon as a thunderstorm hit, they'd all die of a heart attack. So you would never get pigeons for like three weeks after a thunderstorm. And I learned all this sort of stuff just through, yeah, and everyone was just obviously French. You were just immersed in the language and 
you got to pick up all these stories and everything just became this incredible story on a plate. Everything from asparagus to butter to baby pigeons to the guy that in Italy that would bring his boat up every morning with our seafood. Um, I, I loved it. And that's when I, I had all this energy then to come back to Australia to say, wow, I want to do this in Australia. I want to find incredible producers and work with them and um, put that on a plate and tell a story. Um, and that's when I came back in 2000. Well, in 2000, you opened View de Monde in, um, in Carlton. What was it like having learnt what you had overseas and trying to translate that back here in Australia? Well, it was, it was incredibly naive of me to think that I could do it, first of all, because um, I was still only... Uh, I hadn't turned 25 yet when I opened. And so I borrowed um, $70,000 off a, a friend of my dad's named George Stegar. And I always remember that. He just wrote a check and just said just – he added an extra $10 on and he just said make sure you get a haircut. And uh, <laughs> I just – for me, that was like, uh, you know, typical Australia where you get no problem having a crack. Someone will support you. And so I opened that restaurant. I bought an old Italian restaurant um, that wasn't working on the corner of Faraday and Drummond Street um, called Sicilian Vespers. And I remember I didn't even have enough money to change the sign over. So the first month um, it was still called Sicilian Vespers on the outside, but on the inside uh, called Vue de Monde. And I, pro producers were so hard to find. And um, I, I had uh, real problems. I remember with uh, a butcher that got me into trouble so many years later, actually a current affair put this silly story on saying I had a butcher money they never said how much money but it was actually only 36 dollars because that was how much the black pudding was that he bought he bought this black pudding into the kitchen and i said mate this black pudding is is not right it's like liquid it's it's seeping out you take take it back he got really offended with me so there was this huge fight um and he ended up throwing a chair through the window and um Oh, it was full on. It's, and it was like uh, the old days that reminded me of Marco because everyone was so loyal to me and this butcher just kicked off. And he actually got charged uh, in the end for that. But um, all those things where I was so frustrated, so angry um, at life and, and when I couldn't get what I wanted, um, I just couldn't believe that in the UK where they think Australia's got this incredible produce, here I was in, in 2000 struggling. I couldn't even get good quality fish. I couldn't get good quality seafood, um, vegetables. We even started thinking about how do we grow our own? How do we grow our own carrot that tastes like a carrot? And so I opened the restaurant prematurely in many ways and then really limited the menu and then started to build relationships. Uh, people like um, David Blackmore, um, who I just found by accident. Um, I had a conversation with Neil Perry, which was enlightening. Um, it was about seven months in where he was telling me about a guy named Mark Ether who sells most of, most of his fish to Japan and everything is with the art of Ikejimi of brain spiking the fish and chilling it down really quickly. And well, I was just enlightened. So um, Steve uh, from Moonlight, Steve Folletti from Moonlight Oysters, um, being so fanatical about his rock oysters and learning the art of going to see him and understanding why Pacific oysters are, are, are rubbish, oily and fatty. And um, I, I learned so much by all these trips that I did, just going around and finding great um, asparagus growers. And, um, and then eventually the menu started to change. It took me about three years to get the menu to where I felt it was going to be 
um, comparable to a restaurant of stature overseas. And, um, and networking too, because networking amongst chefs wasn't really something that was seen in, in Australia at the time. There was sort of a lot of rivalry. But overseas um, in Europe, most chefs talked to each other a lot on the phone and um, would pop into each other's kitchen. So there was a lot of sharing of knowledge. So I started to build up a network of, of guys that I could talk to. Um, I always remember Raymond Capaldi was amazing uh, to talk to. Uh, Ray always shared knowledge on who he knew as suppliers and what have you. And so I love that where eventually we built up this wonderful group of, of chefs, including Andrew McConnell and quite a few others who you basically get together and you just talk about produce, talk about the challenge you're facing in the industry and we help each other grow and get stronger. And so, yeah, out of that, I think in 2005, I, I was really satisfied with the menu, where it was going, and I started to then focus on the food is, is where I want it to be. I now need the restaurant to be where it needs to be and to be a, a place where it's the full package, where you can have an incredible wine cellar, an incredible fit out, and it becomes a total aspirational, immersed experience. And so that's when I decided to take the big plunge. I started to finally make some money um, and I piled it all back into finding a new location. And um, I found a, a guy named Maurice Swartz who was a, a diner in the restaurant. He's a well-known publisher and philanthropist in, in Melbourne. Um, really great guy. And he had a, a, a building in the city um, called Normanby Chambers. So I moved the restaurant to there with, with a lot of financial support from Maurice and I put in a million dollars myself of money, and um, which was a lot of time, but it was basically, I, I was so determined I wanted to, to win the best restaurant in Australia. That was, that was my number one goal. And I knew that I wasn't far off doing that. I had a great team. And it also takes you a long time to understand how important a team is. And it's, it's not part of your training when you're an apprentice, and it should be. It's, it's so important that you realize you're, you, you're part of a team. You're, you're part of these guys that are committing absolutely everything they can for the love of cooking. And it's hard to explain that to anyone outside the industry, but when you're immersed in cooking and just the detail and the precision needed, and it's all done under pressure and duress of an order coming in and time. And, and so, so many things you're thinking about in your mind and you, you've got multiply that by, there's like 16, 17 of you in the kitchen doing the same thing. And I knew I was, you could just see these moments where the kitchen was just running absolutely just perfectly in this tiny kitchen in Carlton. I was like, it's time for us to get the kitchen we deserve and the dining room we deserve. Um, and I, we opened, um, it was around about the 26th of June, I think we, we, we opened in 2005. Sorry. Um, 2005. And it, um, for me, that was like the, the moment we won the restaurant of the year that year. And from there, it was, um, I don't know, it was, it, everything changed. Your whole perspective, perspective of uh, expectations um, started to sit on your shoulders. So you sort of, we didn't celebrate that, um, I suppose, that award. I mean, we didn't even look at it as an award. It was like a step for us. But we, I, I think we may have had one drink and it was like, right, how do, how do we now meet the expectations of being the best restaurant in Australia? And I suppose on hindsight, looking back, I wish I'd celebrated that more. I wish I'd um, taken the time to take a deep breath and take more of that in. Um, I remember 
Peter Gilmore was uh, down for the awards and he um, he came into the restaurant the next day and uh, was congratulating me and he was only sort of sort of new on the scene, I suppose, in, in many ways. And um, I was sharing a lot of information with him, telling him that what what we did, what I felt were the were the key components for us to win that award and the, the consistency you need. And um, in my mind, then I, I was like, yeah, well, geez, the expectations for next year to win it again are going to be so important. So I think that was the hardest year of my whole career was that next year was the commitment to retain that number one, and which we did. We, um, we worked incredibly hard and um, there was so many eyes and ears on you. Um, I remember Ferran Adria came out to Australia to launch his book and he was, uh, um, you know, wandering in our kitchen, wandering in our cool room. And it just felt everyone was looking at you. Everyone was wondering, what are you doing? What, what's, and so I didn't, for me, it was, I didn't focus too much on um, the techniques in that year to, to grow a menu. I just focused on really good stories coming from great producers and just making sure that we become this curator of their ingredients. And that was what I would tell everyone. So it was important that we started to focus on what sort of plate we put the food on, um, how it's delivered to the table. And around about that time, that's when Noma opened. And um, I remember Bob Hart um, coming to me and saying, hey, being his wife was Danish. So he was saying, hey, there's this amazing restaurant that's really focusing on just local ingredients and celebrating their, their local food culture. And they are getting the chefs to go to the table and to narrate the dish and tell, tell the guests about the dish. And so I was like, what a, what a fabulous idea. I'll, um, I think we should start doing that as well because it's an open kitchen. We have so much interaction. Mm. Um, and my thinking then changed a lot about um, what is Melbourne food culture? What is Australian food culture? And I really actually struggled to, after a lot of field trips and, speaking to Indigenous elders and, and people who forage for food, native ingredients, I came to the conclusion that may have been controversial at the time, but I was like, well, actually, Indigenous people and Indigenous culture don't have a food culture. For them, food is in the story of finding it. And then there is no, for me, a food culture is something about pairing food together. So you would take a, a berry and you would take a nut and then you will combine that with a protein, and that is that's a that's a food culture, and it's a celebration of those three ingredients all being available at the same time, um, in the same surrounds. Where indigenous culture in Australia was more about yes, a celebration of the seasons, but it was more about the nourishment of that one ingredient, and just and the story of that one ingredient. Um, and I and I felt well. I don't really understand how a chef can then take that ingredient and do it any justice by combining it with other items. It just didn't really feel right to me. Um, so I just started to play with the idea of finger limes, native finger limes. Great. Um, we, can com we can combine that and put it into a recipe that was um, a normal Tahitian lime and, just, and then play with ideas around that and then use the texture of the finger lime. And so that, that sort of set me on the path then to simplicity and at the same time ironically about 2008 a guy named Corey Campbell um, came into my life um, he dropped me an email through um, another ex-chef of mine Ryan Clift who was then in Singapore 
who uh, owns a tipping club over there. Ryan was one of my first head chefs in, in the kitchen. They were talking and Corey was on his way back to Australia. He'd been at Noma and I had these great conversations with Corey on the phone and we decided to take the plunge for Corey to come on over and uh, come over and command the kitchen. And I would just focus on dish design and Corey would um, implement those dish designs. And the one thing that we both focused on was making food simple, complicated in the fact behind the scenes that it, it, it can be complicated to get it to look that beautiful and simple, but just celebrating one or two key ingredients. And I was tackling that in my mind of, of, well, as long as you can't cook these dishes at home, as long as you can't get these ingredients and you can't put these dishes, I want you to come to the restaurant and feel incredibly inspired and have a sense of aspiration that, wow, I'd, I'd love to be able to create this at home, but I know I can't. And that's where it was a full-time job for me then was basically just creating food that would taste great, look beautiful, but really simple. And, and then be able to tell the story to the, to the guest by dropping the plate down and telling them where the ingredients came from. Um, and it was an incredibly enjoyable time. Um, uh, at the same time, high pressured still. We, we had uh, all the awards around us. We had the expectations that we were, we, we then had the top 100 restaurants thing in the world and top 50 restaurant thing in the world. And so there was all these expectations of diners and guests and what to expect from you. Um, but I, I enjoyed all of those challenges. Um, and I enjoyed the fact that I felt then in around about 2009 that I was restless. I wanted to create another environment. I felt this restaurant was amazing at Normby Chambers, um, started to expand and had a bistro and a cafe brand as well. And I was like, the, the restaurant game has changed a lot. People are putting a lot more money into the fit outs of the, of the world's best restaurants. And they're, there's a total immersed experience in the theme of the food, but also throughout the fit out. And so that's when I decided, I always recall a, a story of um, when I was in um, Carlton days, I, there was a guy, the Grollo family are a very, very well-known family in Melbourne and um, incredible Italian family. Um, and there's, there's two brothers. So there's Reno and Bruno and Reno um, owns Rialto. Uh, both the brothers split their business in two. And Reno has a son named Lorenz Grollo, a really lovely guy. Now, I remember um, in the first few weeks of Vudemont opening, the Grollos actually came into the restaurant not knowing anything about it at all, just walked past and said, oh, we'll have a meal here. And all I can recall is that I was there was only three of us in the kitchen and there was only one front of house. That's all I had. And we, were, we had about 30 booked for lunch that day and I was like, oh, no more. No, we just can't do it. And the Grollos walked in for a table of eight, and I remember, oh, my God, geez, how are we going to do this? And all I remember is that Reno came up to the kitchen, and he said, oh, hey, uh, where's your wine cellar? And I'm like, what, wine cellar? Uh, it's that way. What, what's, what's the problem, Mr. Grollo? And he said, uh, oh, well, your, your manager's walked out, and, uh, but I'll get our wine. That's okay. Um, he's told me where the cellar is. And I was like, oh, my God. And he was right. The, the manager at the time just put his apron down and walked. Wow. So all I remember is I had two young apprentice guys, Jason Brazola, I always remember that name, um, and Adrian, both of them in the kitchen, and I did the front of house. And that's where I picked up a relationship with a lot of customers doing that uh, sort of thing, guiding the two apprentices, coming out, serving the dishes, taking the orders. And all I remember is then having this conversation 10 years later with 
Reno and his son about them wanting to put Viewdemond on the top floor of the Rialto. And I honestly thought that they were joking. I thought they were, I thought, there's no way this is this, seriously. And I added up some numbers in my head and I was like, it would cost probably $12, $13 million to do that. This, this, wow. this is ridiculous. Um, but they actually obviously knew something about me and it just planted this seed in the back of my brain that I just couldn't get out. And um, I started to then flirt with the idea and, and talk to Lorenz. And um, I just remember getting the number that it, it was about $11 million to uh, refit the whole top 55th floor of Rialto into an incredible Butamond. And I used the same architect, um, Callum Fraser, uh, from Ellenberg Fraser, and uh, we did a, an incredible design. And um, all I recall is, uh, wow, how am I going to get that money? And um, so I basically just mortgaged everything I had and I borrowed $5 million from NAB. And, um, and I thought one goal is only is I, I want to have an incredible bar and I want to be able to have restaurant of the year again, um, gourmet traveler and be ranked number one in Australia. I think that that for me is one of, at the time, the, the best award you could have and the best recognition you could have because all of us, all of the chefs, we admire that award so much. And, um, I was like, I'm going to need to turn over $300,000 a week for this restaurant uh, to work. And so I was literally tripling the numbers that we were doing financially and I didn't want to take away anything from the guests. So I actually took down the number of seats. We had 55 seats in the Normandy Chambers and I took it down to 38 seats. And then I had the bar and then I had an event space. And the bar and the event space was so important for subsidising Viewdemont for those 38 guests. But I was able to do two turns, which was really good, um, an early sitting and a late sitting, um, which helped a lot. It was a bit controversial. Some guests um, found it a bit difficult to understand that they had to leave by a certain time. But what we did with those guests is we tried to – we only would ever turn over around 75% of the restaurant. So we'd always – any guests that were a bit uncomfortable about turning the table – we wouldn't, we would just, they wouldn't even know. They'd be there for the whole night. So we worked ways around it. I, I really did get an incredible uh, team together that I just built up over time. Um, and so we won that award that year and it was incredible. And I, one thing I did, I took more time to celebrate it with our team and also give Corey the credit that he deserved. Um, Corey was this calm, incredible guy in the kitchen who a lot of the team looked up to, um, where I was more manic um, coming in, getting the tempo up, um, and we bounced off each, off each other perfectly and um, always truly admire that time of um, moving. It's, it's so difficult to move a restaurant logistically, and I think we, the transition we did through that period, we did it so well, and um, huge hats off to the team uh, that, that helped with that. It was incredible, incredible time. Tell us about the pressures of, you know, wanting to, be the number one restaurant of wanting three stars or three hats and and what sort of impact does that have on uh, someone over such a long period of time oh you become obsessed so you you just there's nothing else that you think about day and night is restaurants food um if you get time off you want to go and eat and visit other restaurants uh to see what they're doing um and it becomes a fabric of you um and totally just wraps you and you just and you just every morning you get up with this incredible energy and vigor that you know today 
you already have your day mapped out what you want to do and um, you just live off adrenaline. And so you, you can be working 18-hour days and it, it just feels like you're working a six-hour day because you're so obsessed with perfecting something, a technique or a dish or going to get a new plate made for a new dish coming up or getting a mould made for a dessert that you've got an idea for, resetting the table. So there's just it's just non-stop. And you've got to also realise that you've got, in the restaurant itself, there's around about 75 team members that make up the, the restaurant, a fine dining restaurant. Everyone from someone and reservations to someone who looks after your phone calls, your EA, and there's there's just so many moving parts that you're, you've got to be such a good communicator. And if you're not a good communicator, um, I find it hard how you could be a number one in your field. You just, you, communication is crucial and you have to be perceived and you have to be incredibly self-aware and self-confident that um, sometimes when you're saying something, you know people are not going to agree with it and you just have to follow it through. I always remember one crucial thing that I felt was really important for us to become number one. It was we had always a couple of tables that would not, not show up after, for their reservations, and it was incredibly frustrating. So I devised a way that was quite normal overseas was that you would pay a deposit. You would uh, give us your credit card when you booked. And there was a huge pushback from my team on this. but. There was a huge effect for us that five or six tables in, in the week would uh, not show up. That was basically our profit. We couldn't replace that. Yet we had a, a waiting list of sometimes over 100 people for one service, one dinner. And so I, I decided that I would do it. And um, I took the plunge and we got the technology. We got all of the software we needed and we started uh, charging, asking for credit card. This was after our second win of uh, Restaurant of the Year. And I got taken to court by the ACCC at the time, and I won the case. And I remember for me, when we actually didn't get all the way to court, and we, we settled, and basically I opened the gate for everyone else to be able to do that. And I kept it quiet because I wasn't sure the reputation, what it would do to the restaurant, whether people would be deterred, what have you. But I felt it was so important for us, when you're number one, you need to cut through things. You need to, and the pressure it put on me was huge, but I was like, you have to leave a legacy when you do things. And when you're number one, you have to do something that is going to be there beyond your lifespan and your time. And for me, that was one thing really crucial to us because it gave us profit. It gave us those five or six tables from now on. If you didn't show up, we'd charge you. And back in 2008, that was a big deal, really big deal. Um, and then from there, we shared the technology and shared the information with Tetsuyu. I remember he was the second restaurant to do it. Um, and a big rival of ours at the time too for, for the best restaurant in Australia. But I thought it was important that he did it as well and then others to follow. And so we could protect a bit of the industry. You've turned your hand to all sorts of levels in the food service sector in the last decade. Uh, how does someone that's such a perfectionist and so driven and likes to put themselves under such pressure deliver such different uh, levels of, of, of food service that isn't sort of three hat? Um, I think it follows as you mature and what you, I, I think whatever you create, no matter what it is on a plate, it's the first person you're pleasing is yourself and you, it's what you want to eat. So all through my 20s, I, I wanted to cook fine dining food, whether it was at home, in a restaurant, or I wanted to learn about it. That was all I wanted to do. 
And so if you come over to dinner at my place, uh, which I very rarely cooked at home, at that stage very rarely just didn't get the time, but if I did, I would try and create dishes that I was cooking in the restaurant. And so be, it was just wow. that was just my whole head and philosophy. And so then that changes over time. You have kids and then you're still wanting to use great ingredients, but you're wanting to cook it simply just because of time factors and also what you're craving, what you're, what you're feeling like um, and your lifestyle. And so the restaurants all depicted what I, I want, what I like. And so serving great coffee, um, serving with, with biodynamic milk, um, you know, having a story behind where the, the bread was baked and, you know, having our own bakery, all those things were really important. Um, so I, for me, I was, um, everything I opened was about a, a phase in my life that as I was maturing and as I was wanting a different sort of experience, I knew other people would relate to it. And that's how French food, bistro came up, uh, cafes, um, a bakery, um, hamburgers. Hamburgers was something that I was, I was frustrated with that um, most burger shops you go to, they're just full of sugar and fat. And I wanted to do an organic burger. These days, uh, you're the owner of Burnham Beaches. Tell us about this project. Well, look, it's, it's been a long journey. I, I fell in love with Burnham Beaches back in uh, 2007, and um, it came up onto the market uh, receivership with Bank West, and this property was 70 acres, a uh, huge old mansion. Uh, previously, the property was owned by someone I hugely admire, a guy named Adrian Zecker, who started Aman Hotels. And Adrian was going to open an Aman Hotel uh, in 1990 there. He was operating it as Burnham Beaches, as a, as a hotel with Relais Chateau, and was readying it with Kerry Hill, the architect, famed architect, to open uh, an Aman. Uh, it would have been the third Aman in the world. And um, for anyone who hasn't um, stayed in an Aman hotel, it's, it's a bucket list experience. Um, and I was then determined to... Uh, with with a friend of mine, Adam Garrison, who'd, who'd bought the GPO a few years earlier and restored the GPO and turned that around. I, I felt we were a really good team to be able to look at this historic building from from my perspective being a restaurateur was that you could then, what's left? Well, I'd love to be able to cook people a beautiful dinner and then get them to stay overnight. That would be the most awesome thing in the world and then give them breakfast the next morning. So a hotel is a normal transition to that. Um, unbeknownst to me, I opened the bakery up there. I opened, a, I, I planted um, 500 truffle trees, a truffle patch um, that produces um, half a oh, half a ton of truffles a year now. Um, we've got uh, six acres of vegetable gardens. All the all the grounds are all organic. Um, we've got yeah, the bakery and the cafe, um, and so it was basically um, just this passionate dream to then open, restore the mansion, and open the hotel. Planning has taken forever. Um, there's so many layers. It's a it's a listed property with Heritage Victoria. Council finally gave us permission to do a hotel there um, and wanted to put a sake brewery uh, on the side as well. So, so many plans. But every hurdle we've, we've, you get another one, you get another road bump. So, we're still going through a few. Um, then COVID hit. I sold, obviously, the businesses there. Uh, then COVID hit. I then bought the businesses back. And it, um, so being the landlord, I didn't want anything to happen to the businesses and some really good people in those businesses. So 
we've just kept them going for the moment and we're working out where we're dealing with Amman, which is amazing, um, and working out how we can get an Amman opened, um, which is really important um, to the success of the site. It has to be incredibly high in destination and there's no better time now in talking of luxury Australian experiences, holiday experiences with um, all our international borders down. So it's it's there, but momentum for me is also being a dad with six kids um, and I'm uh, I'm the primary carer of, of, of the children. My wife and I um, sadly separated four and a half years ago. And so for me, um, looking after the kids full time, it's um, it basically takes precedence. So Burnham Beach has had to take a back step and a lot of the team that are down there are doing a wonderful job um, in terms of just operating something really good, uh, really simple, great coffee, really good quality bread. And we'll just keep that going until we've got all everything lined up, um, all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed. And um, hopefully in the next 18 months, we'll, we'll be able to put a shovel in the ground and get this hotel going. It sounds amazing. Um, Shannon, you've, you've won basically every accolade that you could possibly have won in your chefing career in Australia. What, what sort of advice would you give to young chefs looking to be the very best that they can be? Uh, I think you've got to be, in, in this in this age, I think we are in a very, very difficult um, period for anyone who wants who's young and wants to be ambitious because there are so many things that you've got to be careful about now, social media and um, everyone's got a voice. And I think what the most important thing is that um, those squeaky voices, those squeaky wheels that are out there having a go at you because you yelled at someone or because you're committed and you're passionate, um, you just got to ignore them and you've got to realise that they're not the majority, they're the minority. And that's what, unfortunately at the moment, what is um, the modern day and technology has given us. It's given us some wonderful things, but it's given a very, very small minority um, who have a lot of hatred and a lot of negativity in them a loud voice. So you've got to really navigate that. And that goes from everything from restaurant reviews, you know, you've got to really separate yourself out from from looking at negative feedback, negative noise in, in your environment of the of, of opening a restaurant and just focus on great ingredients and great stories. And that will always rise to the top. And I would suggest before you even opened your own kitchen, you need to get out for three months and travel and find out who are the best producers that I can use. That is the number one goal. And as soon as you've got those relationships, you've got those supply chains all sorted out, you've got your menu basically written. And if you've got the skill and the experience sitting in behind that, you'll be able to tell this wonderful story on a plate and make whatever your restaurant is aspirational. Doesn't need to spend a lot of money on it, but put your heart and soul into that fit out. And from there, you've got a great restaurant that people are going to want to visit. Well, Shannon, I know there's so much more that we can talk about. Um, we're truly honoured to have you on Deep in the Weeds today. Hopefully we can um, catch up with you again and dig deeper into your life and see what's happening uh, with Burnham Beaches moving forward. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, Huck. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on your show. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPA community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast.
or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.